The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we ask you to hasten the day when we all bow down. There is a time coming. You will bring your kingdom in in its fullness and it will cover the earth. Bring that day, we pray. Day when we all bow down before you in adoration and love and thanksgiving and joy unfathomable. Until then, Lord, I pray for grace to sustain us, for grace to give us sight to see, for grace to give life to us where we are dead. Lord, work in our midst. And today, Lord, as we listen to your scripture, would you make things clear that need to be clear to particular minds? sitting in particular seats here. We're all in a different place, Lord. We need to hear different things. And I pray that you would speak to us individually as well as corporately. Give life to your word. Give life to your word through my feeble words. And honor your own name. That's what our prayer is, Lord. Amen. Get a little light adjustment there. In the Michael Jordan era of Chicago Bulls basketball, it was really easy to be a Bulls fan. They beat everybody constantly, the Utah Jazz included. And being from Chicago, I can say that. (laughs) But Jordan left, and his supporting cast, as it was called, collapsed. And there were a number of really sorry years there. They're a better team now, but back during those bad years, the, the team had some trouble filling the seats in the stadium. And so they came up with a few ad, different ad campaigns. And one of those ad campaigns centered around this phrase, through thick and thin. Through thick and thin. And various ad spots in different ways were all making the same point, that real fans stick with their team through thick and thin. Through the good times, the Jordan era, and through the bad times, the, the then-current era of futility. <laughs> so if, if you're a fan, then you come. And I, I thought that was a rather clever way of putting the blame on the fans and inducing some guilt in them for not filling the stadium, which I thought was the management's job to get a good team. But anyway, apart from all that, there was some leverage in that ad campaign because they're touching on a, on a truth there. There is a difference between fair-weather fans and real fans. There is something in our culture that we call a bandwagon. And when things are going well, people in droves jump on that bandwagon and follow along with you and celebrate and party, and they seem to be with you. But just go through a losing stretch, and all the enthusiasts disappear. And those people who remain are the real fans. The genuine ones. It's a truth there about commitment. And of course we know that this sort of commitment, when it's easy and when it's hard, to a sports team is irrelevant. It, it just doesn't matter in life. But that's not always the case in all things. In some things in life, true and genuine commitment, or lack thereof, is everything. It's the whole question. It's the whole issue. Are you genuinely fastened to this thing? Do you own it? Is it yours? Or are you just a clinger on, a bandwagon rider, an enthusiast? Sometimes that's the whole question. That is the issue. Are you genuine or are you false? It's one of the issues that's going to be addressed in this morning's passage. And in addressing that issue, while doing that, we're going to see another aspect of this new and better idea brought forth for us this morning. 
For a while now, for several weeks, we've been looking at the book of John and we've been seeing new and better things revealed. John is showing us something in a new and better way and connecting it to Jesus in some way. So we saw that Jesus is the new and better Jacob, that is Israel, the one who is the focus of all the covenant blessings and through whom the blessings are dispersed. He's the new and better Jacob. He's also the one who brings in the messianic feast with its new and better wine of joy and celebration. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the new and better temple. He's the place where we meet God, the only place where we can meet God in Christ. And this week, he's going to teach us about the new and better birth. New and better birth. We have all been born physically. We exist. We're here after all. But the Bible is really clear. That though we are physically alive right now, we are all starting out, we all begin spiritually dead to God. Unable to relate to Him. Separated from Him. And if we stay there, we remain separated forever. We must experience a new coming to life. If we want to relate to God, be spiritually alive to Him, we must experience this new and better birth. That's what Jesus is going to press upon a man named Nicodemus this morning. And he presses it upon us as well. We need to hear that. Because he's going to do it in the larger context of genuine faith. So we're going to spend most of the time this morning talking about this new and better birth, but we're going to do it in the context of genuine faith. Spend some time on that at the very end. I'm going to read the passage. And my usual habit is to read the passage and then go back through it rather quickly to discuss certain points and then spend most of my time elaborating on a few summary ideas at the end. Because of what this passage is and some things that are in it, I'm going to actually flip that. I'm going to spend more time in the review of the passage, teaching through different details in the passage. Comparatively, more time there and less time on a couple of summary ideas at the end. First, let me start by reading the passage. I'm in John chapter 2 beginning in verse 23 and going through chapter 3, verse 15. John 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven excepting he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The last three verses of chapter 2 are forming a transition paragraph from the very public ministry in the temple that we saw last week to the very private conversation that he has with Nicodemus this week. 
And it's in this paragraph that the issue of genuine belief is first raised. Back at, at the end of the previous passage, in verse 22, we had the disciples, this is kind of flash forward, after the resurrection, looking at the things that happened around them and Christ coming back from the dead and remembering the back to this event at the temple where he had forecast this. They saw the things, they remembered what he had said, and they believed the word of God, the scriptures, and they believed the word of Christ, the word made flesh. They believed. Then we come down to verse 23, still in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, and we find that, in fact, there are a whole bunch of people who believe. I should put that in quotes, perhaps, who believe. It's seen a lot of things going on, more things than are recorded here in our text, a lot of power displayed by Jesus They saw that, they were amazed by it, and they believed. And that sounds pretty good, right? A lot of believers in Jerusalem. A lot of Christians, right? This is what Jesus is after. This is good news. We should keep reading. Verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It's the same word there. It's another example of John writing something to say two different things. He's kind of got a little pun going here. He uses the same word for they believed, but Jesus didn't believe. They believed in him, and Jesus did not believe in them. Didn't entrust himself to them. He saw what was in their hearts. He knows who they really are. They're bandwagon riders. They've seen some power, and they want a part of it. Sort of. In a way, but not really. Jesus knows what's in man. Like this man, for instance. Here's an example. Nicodemus. That's how the chapters are connected. They flow out of Jesus knowing the heart of man like this man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That would be the the ruling council of all the Jews. This is a respected man. A man of, of stature. A man of responsibility. And he comes to him pretty politely respectfully and he calls him rabbi and that's saying something because this man is of such stature and he's probably close to twice Jesus's age just a guess but that would be an average age for a Sanhedrin member and Jesus is about 30 so he's speaking to this person who would be much younger than him and kind of an itinerant and he calls him rabbi teacher it's pretty respectful and what he says to him rabbi we know Probably he and some of his disciples, or perhaps he and a a, a little portion of the Sanhedrin that were of a similar mindset. We know something. We know that you're a teacher who's come from God, because, I mean, look at what you're doing. That's obviously the, the pleasure and the approval of God on you. It's only a statement, but it must have been spoken kind of like this. We know that you're a teacher who's come from God because no one could do what you're doing if God didn't approve. The voice goes up at the end a little bit. There's kind of of a question there. The implied question is, if you've come from God, what are you here for? Why did he send you? What are you up to? Who are you? You see, the Jews of the day were expecting something. We call this from chapter 1. They were expecting a coming Messiah and before him Elijah the prophet to return and before him another prophet to return. And so they were looking and looking and looking and they'd gone in chapter 1 to ask John the Baptist, are you this guy? Are you the the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. It's the same approach they're taking to Jesus here, that, that of the delegation, the investigation. We know you're someone who? We know you're here on a on a mission. What? Jesus doesn't enter into that discussion, though, like John did. Instead, he assumes command of the situation by abruptly changing the subject and presuming to teach this elder, this man who is of the Sanhedrin. Truly, truly. Amen and amen. This is a solemn beginning. This is for real. Listen up. And he says that three times in this passage. Jesus is deadly serious here. He's pressing something on him, as I said. Truly, truly, listen to this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
born again. Same phrase down in verse 7. You can compare the footnote. Your Bible probably has a footnote. and You'll note that this word again could be translated from above. Greek word means both things. could mean either. And interestingly, we have another example of dual meaning here. It means both here. Born again, born again from above. They both fit. All of us have been born once already. And Jesus is solemnly telling Nicodemus that that is not sufficient. You, Nicodemus, must be born again a second time in a new way. Born again from above. Born of water and spirit, as the parallel statement in verse 5 says. A second birth from above, from God in other words. Just like was already mentioned back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. A birth from God is absolutely critical. Without this, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the idea of the kingdom of God makes perfect sense for this Pharisee. He gets that. The kingdom of God, or the reign of God. In other words, in the New Testament, the, the kingdom of heaven, or eternal life, as John commonly uses. These terms are all synonymous. What they mean is the reign of God. His control. His, his expression of His sovereignty. Kingdom. The Old Testament talks about this. This Pharisee expects it. A time when people would live in a renewed and ultimately gloriously sinless world in the presence of God with Him in joy, in close fellowship with Him, privileged in experiencing His, His delightful control of their lives, His protection of them. That's the kingdom. That's what the Old Testament expects. The Pharisee gets that. That makes perfect sense to him. It's the condition to get there that makes no sense whatsoever to him. So in verse 4, he responds in shocked ridicule. It's hyperliteralism here. He hears him say, you must be born again. He says, me? Born again? Are you crazy? Can a man climb back into his mother and be born again when he's old? Nicodemus does not misunderstand he doesn't think that Jesus is talking about him needing to do that. He says something deliberately ludicrous to Jesus because what he, he thinks that what Jesus just said to him was equally ludicrous. Jews of that day believed, the vast majority of Jews, because of their lineage from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, were approved of God and would one day see the kingdom. Now, extraordinarily wicked people, apostates, sure, they were, they were out. But the vast majority of, of religious, observant Jews, the vast majority of people, were loved of God because of their lineage. The covenant blessings were poured out in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and through them to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this nation, this people. And certainly the extraordinarily righteous and careful, a Pharisee of the Sanhedrin, for instance, certainly he is approved by God. Look at how he lives. Look at how careful he is to follow all of these rules. And how he even sets up rules to help himself follow the rules. He's extremely careful to obey and honor God. Surely he's good. Surely he's in. We don't often think about this in relation to, to Jews and Gentiles and the law. We might think about it as, surely this moral, ethical, upright, helpful, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent person is in. Don't we? Look at him. If God approves of anybody, it must be this person. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in his opening line, No. Everyone, he's speaking in the plural here. Nicodemus, his friends, all of us, just like brand new babies, need to be born again in an entirely new and different way. What we are and what we do matters not. Nicodemus came to him at night and he's standing in the dark. And the light just went on. 
It shines on him and exposes him. And it strips away all of his human pride, all of his human status, all of his human works are shown to be worthless. He is in exactly the place that every other person on the planet is, you and I included. I'm a good guy, he thinks. I'm pretty ethical. I'm obedient to God's rules as best I can be, of course. Not enough. You must be born again. And Jesus drives this home by saying the very same thing again in verse 5. But he makes it less ambiguous by taking out the word again or from above and replacing it with another phrase. Born of water and spirit. It's one phrase. If you line those two sentences up, you see they're parallel. And he's just replaced that word with the phrase of water and spirit. And recognizing that structure helps us to understand what he's talking about with the of water and spirit. It's one thing together. It's not two different things. It's parallel to this new birth from above. So he's not talking about a physical birth versus a spiritual birth. Some people have tried to understand the water as being like amniotic fluid. Jesus is talking about a physical birth there. There's, there's a difference between a physical and a spiritual birth down in verse 6, but not yet in verse 5. Verse 5, if you look, is parallel to verse 3. A little technical there, but I hope you follow me. He's not talking about amniotic fluid or any kind of natural birth. And he's not talking about baptism either. Nicodemus would not have understood that. He's speaking to him about something that he thinks Nicodemus should understand. That's why he scolds him later. And the fact that he thinks Nicodemus should understand this should cause us to think about the Old Testament. If Nicodemus gets this, or should have gotten it, where did it come from? Jot down Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. You could actually begin in verse 22. There are a number of places we could look for this in the Old Testament. This is the easiest place. It's the most clear, I think. In that context, and, and by the way, by no means is Ezekiel 36 an obscure chapter. Ezekiel 36, and these verses are sometimes called Ezekiel's statement of the new covenant, like in Jeremiah where he talks about the new covenant that was going to be written on our hearts. This is Ezekiel's version of that in chapter 36. And in chapter 37, it leads to the, the valley of dry bones coming back to life by the work of God. This is by no means an obscure section of the Old Testament, which is... Partly why Jesus says Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, knows this. If you look there, you see that Israel is awash in wickedness, in uncleanliness, and idolatry. And God tells them what He is going to do for them, despite them. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Water on you. And you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit on you. And I will move you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll pour water on you to cleanse you. I'll pour the Spirit on you to renew you and change you. I will birth you by water and Spirit. Who's the active one there? Like in a birth or in a creation. Is it the creator or the creation? Is it the, the mother or the baby? I will, I will, I will. Look through there. It's again and again and again. It's not you must or together we will. I will do this. I will birth you from above. And you will get born. This is resting in God's hands. And in so doing, it strips us of our human status. I want to do something. I want to keep it in my court. Strangely, we, even if the bar is set really high, we like having the rules set out for us because then it's up to us to follow them or not. We're still in charge. He says, you break all the rules. And you're currently in, in a status of wanton rule breaking. So I will do something. 
God will birth from above, a birth that comes by cleansing of water and renewing by sanctifying spirit. You must have this birth. You must be born again from above, and God must do it. The Spirit must do this. Humans birth humans who are alive to humans here on this earthly plane. But to be alive to God, God must birth you. Don't be shocked at this, Nicodemus. It's in the text, he says. And you know this passage. It's not by your works of cleansing yourself. It is the sovereign, gracious work of God that cleanses you from wickedness. Not by your works so that you can't boast about it at all. It's the grace of God. He does it. And also, don't be surprised if you can't trace out all the little details about how the Spirit does this. The Spirit works in mysteriously wise ways, like the wind blows. You can't see the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it ends up going to, but you can clearly tell what it does. Don't be surprised if you don't know all the details, Nick. Well, he hears this, and he continues to inquire. Probably not genuinely because of how Jesus scolds him. But he asks in verse 9, How can these things be, as in come to be, happen? How can these things happen? Jesus here is, in these next few verses, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because I have to cut somewhere, but Jesus is solemnly asserting his authority. The third, truly, truly here. He asserts, what I am telling you is privileged information. I have a unique status. No one has ever gone into heaven, checked things out, and come back down to tell you about it. I alone have been there. What I tell you, what I testify to before you is true. And the problem is not your confusion or lack of understanding about Nicodemus. It's that you do not accept my testimony. So, so right there in the text. Jesus calls Nicodemus on unwillingness, not on ignorance. He says, you want to talk about what the kingdom will be like, the heavenly things. This is what I think he means by this heavenly and earthly thing. I'm telling you about something earthly that has to happen right here, right now in your life. You can see it. You can look at people that it's happened to. And you want to skip over that and talk about what the kingdom experience will be like. We need to get first things first. You must be born again right here, right now. The kingdom will come later. Don't worry about that. I think that's what he's saying there. I'm going to move on to verses 14 and 15 where, he clo- where Jesus closes and he makes another interesting connection to the Old Testament. You can look at this in Numbers chapter, chapter 21. It's a short but pretty interesting story back there. The people had been sinning against God, so God had decided to judge them by sending amongst them poisonous snakes. And the snakes went all among them and were biting people and many, many people were dying. It's God's judgment on them. And so the people were, were sorrowful over their sin. They, they asked Moses, intercede for us with God and, and ask Him to have mercy on us. And so God did. And His way of deliverance of them didn't involve any, any medicine. It didn't involve any, any formulas or any spells or anything like that. It was oddly straightforward. He told Moses to make a bronze snake. To make a little image of a snake out of bronze, and hoist it up on a pole. And anybody who'd been bitten was told, if you look at this snake, God will heal you. If you don't, you will die. Do you get that? He's going to hoist something up on a pole. Look to it and live. Don't and die. Now, they weren't to have faith in the snake. They were to have faith in God to heal them. Through the snake, Jesus grabs that image. Find We could also say this is a passage about the new and better snake, but it's a small point, so I didn't say that. Jesus grabs that image and says, that's just like me. The Son of Man, me, the Son of Man is himself going to be hoisted up on a pole. The word means both lifted up and exalted. 
Another double meaning there. Christ is going to be lifted up and exalted on the cross and all who look to Him will be saved and those who don't will die. But not looking through Him to God, because remember from chapter 1, He is God, those who believe in Him. You see, the bronze snake, eventually, if you read through the Old Testament, they had to destroy the bronze snake because people had faith in the snake. and They turned it into an idol. They were supposed to have faith in God through the snake. Jesus says, not with me. Have faith directly in me. Believe in me and you will have eternal life. And with that discussion of believing, the loop has been closed and we're back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. We begin with belief and we end with belief. That's kind of the nest of this discussion of genuine belief that I'm going to come to at the very end. And inside of that nest is the larger bit about you must be born again. That's the text. I'll make a couple of observations about just two points here. This issue of, of believing is one of the points. We'll come to that last. But what's the most important thing in the center here is the necessity of this new and better birth. So if you combine these two things together, those are my two basic points. You combine them together, here's how I would express the main point of this passage. The necessary new birth comes from God by faith alone. The necessary, absolutely necessary, critical new birth comes from God by faith alone. Do you believe? Do you believe? It's the two points I'm going to discuss. Let me start with the first one. We must sing this one out loudly and clearly and often. Jesus himself is crystal clear about this point. He solemnly states it three times. He repeats himself word for word almost. You must have a new and better birth. You must. It's necessary. Without it, you are lost. The abruptness with which Jesus changes the subject on Nicodemus should get our attention here. What starts out as that polite investigation is suddenly turned to immediately focus on this. There's no smooth transition there. Jesus is earnest about this. What we must be talking about, Nicodemus, is your need to have a new birth. Regardless of who you are, regardless of how good you are, regardless of your status. The same is true for all of us. Totally new creation must come into existence within you. You have to be made new. A new you must happen. No outward good works. No external obedience to the law of God. No surface belief in Jesus. No performance of any rituals in any temple. No membership of any society or any missions group or any uh, community service organization. None of that matters for anything if you do not have the new and better birth. It is critical. You strive to keep the law and you can do it a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better, but in all of that you're barking up the wrong tree. We're not talking about improvement. We're talking about utter change. A new creation. You can't make that happen. Only the grace of God can do it. You cannot make strawberry pie out of garlic cloves. No matter how much red food coloring and sugar you add in, it will not work. The garlic cloves have to be changed into strawberries. That's what we're talking about. Absolute change, not just improvement. Why does it have to happen? Because of who we are right now. Can you imagine eating a strawberry pie that tasted a lot like garlic? Ugh. There's something fundamentally wrong with us right now. We are not suited for God. In ourselves, our natures are fallen and cast away from Him. And He looks at us, He who knows the hearts of all men and needs no one to testify about them, but knows them Himself. 
He looks at us and he doesn't see someone who's a little bit off and can be fixed. He sees somebody who is in rebellion against him, holds him at arm's length, sits themselves up as judge, and picks and chooses what we like of him. Accepts those things. That's who we are in ourselves. We reject him. We accept what we like about him, but we reject him as a whole as he is revealed who he really is. We've made up a Jesus that we might accept, but not the Jesus who is. And we reject him, we reject his kingdom. We reject his rule of us, his reign over us. In yourself, you can't see the kingdom of God. You'll never come under the loving and precious and wise rule of God. You actually will experience the kingdom of God, but not in a way that anybody wants to. It'll be, experience, it'll be the experience of a coming enemy king, of immeasurable might, fierce in judgment, coming against you, unstoppable, infallible in his execution of justice. You will experience the kingdom in that way, but nobody wants that. We should keep that in mind and we should fear that. But I think that far better than that image of a righteous God come to judge, far better than that image is, is another one that's more persuasive, more captivating to me. Our hearts are made to long for the kingdom from the inside. When we experience that might of God as our refuge, not as our enemy. We experience that justice of God as a protection to us. We experience His might and His power and His wisdom inclined towards us for our blessing, not against us for our cursing. We're, we long for that. We're made for that. The kingdom, think about that. The reign of God in Christ. It is the shining of a bright light into a vast land of bounty. And everywhere that ray of light touches, beauty springs up and flowers and flourishes and comes to fruition. It's like everything it touches turns beautiful. That's what the kingdom is like. The being of God fills all of that realm everywhere. And those inside of the kingdom experience Him and find their rest in Him and find delight in Him that they couldn't imagine before. In His presence is fullness of joy and His presence is everywhere, shot through everything. Joy, delight, filling this kingdom. And the kingdom... While it is not yet fully here, it has already dawned. It's dawned in the hearts of His children. Those of us who have come to know Christ, the kingdom lives in you. And it lives amongst us where two or three gather together. Or in larger numbers in a congregation, we experience a bit of that kingdom. We experience the pleasurable reign of Christ on our lives. In our lives individually and in our lives as a group. There's a sweetness there. It's what we were made for. You know what it's like to experience that feeling or that community and say, oh, this is beautiful. And you also know it doesn't last. You get up from your Bible or you leave your place of meditation or a little conflict arises in the group and you think, oh, I tasted the kingdom, but not fully. wasn't able to drink deeply of it yet because the kingdom, though it's here, is not yet fully here. There is a time coming when Habakkuk's vision will be fulfilled and the glory of the Lord will cover all of the earth as the waters cover the sea. That time is coming. The kingdom will fully be here. The glory of the Lord everywhere. Every breath that we draw. Glory. I think the closest that I get to this now is in, is in the fall here. When I... Experience one of those days when the colors are just ablaze and the temperature is crisp but not cold. The sky is blue and it's clear. You can smell the leaves a little bit. 
Sometimes all of those things converge in some way that I don't quite understand, but something in me almost wants to cry. It's just gorgeous, beautiful. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all of those who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work. And he who works that splendor and majesty must himself be splendorous and majestic. We'll experience him forever like this in the kingdom of God, the reign of God, when it fully comes. And seeing that, experiencing that, living within it, what a blessing. What a benefit to us. But unless you have the new and better birth, all you will be, ever be able to do is think about it. You'll never see it. What a loss that would be. What a tragedy. See, there are, there are two things working here. We should fear the coming of the kingdom as our enemy, and we should mourn the loss of the kingdom as our friend. Unless you experience the new and better birth. You must have that. I realize that most of us here this morning have experienced that birth, and if so, revel in that. Remind yourself of this. Keep it fresh on your mind. The Bible preaches this to you again and again and again. Never just once, and now you know that, so let's move on to something else. This is, this is the sum here. Getting into Christ through Him, experiencing this beautiful reign of God, living with it now, come in part, looking forward to it coming in the future. And that's kind of like a summary. And it keeps repeating that from different angles again and again and again to you. Revel in it. Remember it. Preach it to yourself. Use it when you are tempted to turn away from God. And follow down another path. Know that that other path does not lead to here. Don't walk that one. Hold fast to Him. Would He save you from His judgment? Save you into the kingdom present in your life now and not save you to the presence of the kingdom forever? No. Would He save you from judgment now to the presence of the kingdom here now just to stick it to you with some harsh rule? No. His instruction, His guidance to you is for your blessing so that you can most fully experience Him in this kingdom now and will be most fully prepared to experience it forever. Trust Him. But I know that there are also others here this morning who have not been born again from above. You must be. Lifted up on the cross, Christ has done all that is necessary to remove your sin. But He only removes the sin of His people, and if you have not been born of Him, you're not one of His people. Your sin remains on you. Think that through. You're outside of the kingdom and you're against the kingdom. Be warned and mourn. Don't scoff like Nicodemus did at that. Don't reject this testimony of the one who comes from heaven and speaks with the authority of God in the flesh. This is surely, surely true. Believe what He says about you. And believe what He says about Himself and cry out to Him, God, birth me. I give myself to You. Come to me and change me. Don't just fix me up. Renovate me. Gut the whole thing and make me new. Birth me again, please. God promises the people who come to Him like that, He will not turn away. But do that genuinely. The wholehearted integrity and faith. Because He knows your heart and there's no point in trying to fool Him. You can fool me, you can fool family members, your parents, your spouse, you can fool other people in the church for a while. You can't fool him, so there's no point in even trying. 
And that gets us to the second point. Be more brief here, but this point is something I need to talk about because it's important to John. It's important to us where we are in our American church at this time period. He gives me opportunity to talk about it because he surfaced it. It's always behind the scenes in this book, but he's brought it closer to the surface here. This idea of genuine faith. I might call this point just, just the question, do you believe? Do you believe? And I realize that right away, as soon as I ask that, the majority of people here say, yes, of course, that's why I'm here. That was easy, let's move on. Let's wrap this up already. I know that's the reaction in many of our hearts, but hold on a second and let me bring up a couple things. It's hard to talk about this briefly, but I'm going to try to do it accurately. Make a couple observations. First, observe chapter 2, 23 to 25, the obvious point that many people believed and Jesus didn't give himself to a one of them. Many people thought of themselves and looked at other people and thought of their neighbors, hey, we're on this wagon. We're riding along behind Jesus. And Jesus said, but you're not really on this wagon. You're a clinger on, and I know that, and so I don't give myself to you at all. That's a sad thing. Observe that reality, and that's going to come up again and again and again in this book. Also observe this reality. Chapter 3, verse 15. Those who, it says, whoever believes in him, that word believe there is written in a very particular way, certain tense, that means believe now and continually believe. It's different than how he wrote it in chapter 2, verse 23. Many believed in his name. Written differently. The belief that receives eternal life is the belief that is now and continually forever. The belief that remains. Thirdly, observe with me that what believe means is not a pure intellectual thing. Like, I believe that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. The word means that, but biblically speaking, it's not only that. It's not an abstract intellectual assent or an agreement to something. It is a giving of yourself to a trusting of something. A common illustration is an illustration of a chair. We talk about a chair. I, I believe that chair could hold me up, but biblically speaking, I'm not believing it because I'm not sitting in it. Just intellectually playing with the idea. So take those things together and let me ask you again do you believe? Do you believe in a continual, ongoing sense? The Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Written to a church. Examine yourselves. We seem to have totally forgotten that one and assumed that because of something that happened in the past, something that I said or did in the past, then of course I believe. Why bother examining it today? Genuine faith obviously begins at some place. So it's not entirely illegitimate to say, I believed. I would say that I believed 10 or 12 years ago, whatever, however long it's been. I believed back then. But if you ask me today, as the Bible does, Steve, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith, the evidence the Bible is looking for is not 12 years ago I did. Genuine faith remains, believes continually. It doesn't look back. It looks today. And it says, by faith tomorrow I will also. Here's a profound quote I heard that has challenged me a lot. Think about this. The only sure sign of evidence in the past, of, of evidence of faith in the past, is evidence of faith today. Think about that. The sure sign of evidence in the, of faith in the past is evidence of faith today. Do you believe today? Don't refer me to 12 years ago. 
The faith that receives eternal life is a continual, ongoing faith. It's always present. Now we know faith can, can wane. Sin is lack of faith. So there are times when our faith is strong and times when our faith is weak. So it takes some, it's a little tricky to evaluate this. So I'm, I'm not going to try to say, you do, you don't, you do, you don't. I, I can't pronounce that on you. The Bible doesn't say examine other people. It says examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Do you believe? Genuine believers remain. Remember that word from chapter 2? Forty some times in this book, John drives that home. Genuine believers remain through thick and thin, through the hard teachings about who they really are and how they must come to Christ, through the hard times of suffering, when Christ's power seems to be drawn back, when He hangs on a cross, rejected, and through the good times when His power is displayed everywhere. Through thick and thin, genuine believers remain. False believers depart eventually. Which one are you? It can be hard to sort this out. Many of us will want to give ourselves a free pass right away and say, well, probably these last 12 years are just my faith being weak. Maybe. Could be. Solomon had a long stretch of weak faith. Could be. But it might also be that you never actually truly believed. So don't be too quick to give yourself a free pass. On the other hand, some of us are very hypercritical and, and any sign of sin means that I'm not saved. Don't be too harsh on yourself either. You still have a fallen nature that will sin. There's a balance that's very difficult. I would recommend that if you're struggling with that, that you talk to some other trusted, mature Christian. You can talk to me, talk to one of the elders. Ask them to help you sort that out. You look at the book of 1 John and see what it says about it. Same writer, talking about the similar subject. It's an important thing to him. But this passage brings up behind the idea of needing to be born again, a thing that was very difficult for Nicodemus to hear and believe. It brings up behind that, shaped around it, this idea of you must genuinely believe. In particular, this, about your need to be born again. Genuine believers remain. Do you believe? The necessary new birth comes from God by faith alone. Do you believe? Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.